You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, David. Hello, Will. And hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 104 of the Common Descent Podcast. Getting up there. Yeah. Today, we are talking about pinnipeds. Pinnipeds? What are those? Which are to say seals, sea lions, and the walrus. Well, I'm super excited. This is this is going to be a fun episode because this is a weird group. They sure... Listen, secondarily aquatic yep. organisms. Always super fun. They are already weird and diverse mm-hmm. with a cool fossil record, if a very incomplete one. Yeah. So we'll discuss about what are they... How have they become secondarily aquatic? Like, what features do they have? And then we'll discuss a a bit of what we think we know (laughs) about their evolutionary history. This is going to be very different than whales was. Yeah. While whales is a really nice... This is more like bats. Yes. (laughs) And so, though it is another aquatic mammal, it is not going to be a similar story, just because we don't have the story. But we'll discuss what they've done, some of the weird things they've done, and some of the weird trends, and how... We're still learning how weirdly complex this group is. Yeah, pinnipeds are a a veritable spectrum of strangeness. Yes. And we're talking about them because it was requested. This topic was asked for in one form or another by Jonathan, Klaus, Sam, Austin, Christian, and Brittany. Thanks, everybody. Yeah, good topic. Good suggestion. But before we jump into the episode, as usual, we have some announcements. Patrons? Patrons! We have a Patreon, and if you sign up to support us on that Patreon at a certain level, we like to shout your name. Shout shout away. And the names we have to shout today are Ian, CJ, Sarah, Rob, and Brian. Welcome, everybody. Thanks so much for your support. Thanks to the, and, and thanks to all of our patrons, as always. Uh, they get cool goodies on Patreon, so check it out if you're not already part of it. Yes, and Patreon has let us do all sorts of cool stuff and supports this podcast. So thank you, and we welcome all new supporters. This is episode 104, which means next episode is 105. Oh, that's special. And episodes that end in a five are special for a new reason now. Whole new. This year... Episodes that in a five are plant episodes. Yeah. A.K.A. Alley episodes. Alley's coming back. So our first Alley app will be coming up soon. Yes. The, the, if you missed the announcement in previous uh, episodes, we before this, we were doing extinction episodes on fives. But we decided to make the switch as we moved into the triple digits. And now fives are plant episodes. So the first episode of the new series will be coming out next... Uh, so it's, it's the first uh, guest episode that everybody already knows is coming. Yes, exactly. That's no surprise. So we'll be excited to welcome Allie back and to learn about plants. Yep. Yep. That's, (laughs) this is a learning experience for all of us, except for Allie. And last bit of announcements. Uh, this is the first episode of the new year. So happy new year, everyone. Yeah, it's 2021. Welcome to the new year. A whole new year. And in fact, uh, at the end of this month will be the four year anniversary of the pop boy. We should do something special. Yeah. Well, we should think about that. What do four-year-olds, what are they into? (laughs) Dinosaurs. (laughs) Dinosaurs. (laughs) We should talk about dinosaurs. (laughs) So thanks to everyone for getting us into a new year, for continuing Mm -hmm. to listen to and support the podcast. 
We've got some ideas, some plans, some things in mind, some schemes. Yes, uh, there will be some new stuff this year that we're still ironing the details out on. Working out the kinks, but uh, look forward to some cool things in the future. And with that, we draw our announcements to a close, which means we can start the news section. Every episode, we like to gather up some of the news from the paleoevolutionary biology realm and share it all with all you, keeps us up to date, keeps all of you up to date. And to start us off, David, what's the news? The, the first news of 2021. Make it good. It's good. Oh, oh, oh it's so good. Iguanas, ichnofossils, tropical islands. That's it. Wait, what you, I, I, you're right, like a right, sphinx. Right. I can't reach it. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm sold. I'm this sold. Is I was research. waiting for more alliteration. No, this is research. <laughs> By Anthony Martin et al. in the journal Plus One, and we will link in our blog post. Hey, every episode there's a blog post with bonus links and, and images and stuff. To an article in The Conversation, uh, written by two of the authors, Anthony Martin and Melissa Haig. Iguanas uh, dig burrows. Mm-hmm. For, as the article describes, dwelling and nesting. Uh, generally, the way that this will work is an iguana will dig a vertical chain, you know, a, a column down into the sand lay eggs in there, and then bury it on the way back out. Yeah, just basically collapsing the tunnel as they climb out. Yes, exactly. And then you have this this iguana burrow left behind. This is well known in iguanas today, but has never, until now, been documented in the fossil record. Ooh. This is a report of a trace fossil of an iguana burrow. And it is found in a place where iguanas still live today. The fossil was identified uh, on a road cut, so that is uh, when construction cuts the, the path through a hill or something for a highway or some kind of road. Yeah, it just carves through it. They'll leave a wall of rock. And during a trip, it's uh, from the, discuss- the article, it sounded like a clash trip that Dr. Martin was leading. Saw in this road cut this interesting vertical structure. That's awesome. This took place on San Salvador Island in the Bahamas. Looking at limestone that is about 115,000 years old. So early, late Pleistocene epoch. Now, what makes uh, these scientists think that they have found an iguana burrow in the fossil record? Well, there's a handful of lines of evidence that they very conveniently lay out. The first is that the rock shows basically the structure of a sand dune, the internal structure of a sand dune, but interrupted. This is a, a column of interrupted sand which suggests that it was disturbed while the sand was soft Mm -hmm. in the dune. Second, the disturbance matches the width, the depth, and the shape of modern iguana burrows. Cool. It's the right dimensions for it. It's shaped like an iguana. It's shaped just like an iguana. No. It's like a Looney Tunes. Uh, Incorrect. It's, in fact, similar to the burrows left by rock iguanas that live on San Salvador today. Neat. Additionally, surrounding the trace fossil, uh, in the, the, the remains of the sand dune, there are evidences of roots, so root traces, insect burrows, and the burrows of land crabs. Neat! Which all suggests that what we're looking at is a vegetated inland dune, which is the kind of place that iguanas will leave uh, their burrows. And finally, the burrow is filled with layers of compacted sand that match what we see when an iguana digs its way back out, basically bur- buries the eggs and then gets on top of that layer and then b- 
buries itself and then gets on top of that layer. And but like Minecrafts its way yeah, up out yeah. of the thing by laying down layers underneath it. All that together suggests that yeah, this they they have identified this as a fossilized trace fossil of an iguana burrow, which makes it first a temporal range extension for iguanas on San Salvador. The oldest body fossils on the island are less than twelve thousand years old. Oh, so this is ten times older than that telling us iguanas have been present for much longer. Nice. Also, this is not only the first known example of a fossil iguana nesting burrow, but, according to the paper, the first known example of an iguana trace fossil. Oh. Which actually doesn't surprise me, because yeah. as we've discussed, trace fossils are hard to identify, all the t- uh, specifically to the animal that made them. Yep. So, yeah, no, that doesn't actually surprise me that much. This is unprecedented in all sorts of cool ways. Very interesting. It's Yeah, it's a super weird fossil that is actually very, very useful and, and informative. I think one of my favorite parts of it is just the idea that someone looked at this fossilized dune, this, this you know, solidified dune, and were able to go, well, the patterns say it's a dune, and this pattern says it was disturbed while soft. And this looks like the action of burying and is the right shape to be a burrow and size to be a burrow. Like, who immediately went, that looks like an iguana burrow? Like, I'll tell you who. The, Tony Martin. Yeah. Who is an acknology, uh, insofar as there are acknology superstars, yep. I'm pretty sure that, that he matches the description. And I love <laughs> that. I, I, it's, it's fun to be able to have that moment as a paleontologist with another paleontologist be like, how in the world... Do you know what a cross section of a yep. iguana burrow looks like? <laughs> and that's fantastic. That's so cool. Yeah. And yeah, neat find. Now, uh, some of our listeners might be sitting there going, wait, if this was a nesting burrow, is there evidence of eggs? Yep. And the paper does not mention evidence of eggs. Oh. And also specifically mentions that there is no evidence of little burrows. Of them getting out. Of hatchlings digging their way out of the sand. Which they uh, infer to mean that this was probably a failed nest. Yeah. That either it ended up not working or the eggs were laid but then didn't hatch or something went wrong here. And so there were not a bunch of little baby iguanas digging their way out of this. Gotcha. Bummer. A little sad. Bummer. But But how cool that we can tell that. Yeah, super awesome find. Also, that means that these authors have to go out and find the burrow in the fossil record that does have yep. the little hatchling. Now we know what you need to look for. Yep. You, f- you found uh, most of what you were supposed to find. Go find the better one. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> Come back to us when it's cooler. <laughs> very, very cool. Well, my first bit of news is a, is a quick one. This is a simple one. It's a new species, a new crocodile species from Australia. Ooh. That has just kind of re-emphasized some of our understanding of the, the history of crocs in Australia. This is research by Jorgo Ritztevsky et al. and Pierre J. And the article is by Enrico De Lazaro in Sci News. So this is a new species, new genus and species of cool. crocodile found in Queensland, Australia, called Paludirex vincenti, and is from the Pliocene epoch between about five and two and a half million years ago, and has been nicknamed the Swamp King. Because it is a decently sized croc. It's about five meters long. Ooh. So 16 to 17 feet. Yeah, like a a big alligator. Which is a 
about average size for the saltwater crocodiles. Which are our biggest living crocs. Yep. So it's about the same size as the biggest croc in Australia today. The modern Swamp King. Yes. And that's important to note because that means that these are, these would have been filling potentially similar niches in the environment, except though it was about the same size, it had a much broader, heavier set skull. So to quote the news article, which interviewed the researchers, it would have resembled an Indo-Pacific croc, the saltwater crocodile, on steroids. <laughs> it would have looked like a juiced up, beefy saltwater <laughs> crocodile. Estuarian crocodile. It has a lot of names. It sure does. Because it's found from across two continents <laughs> and a bunch of islands. The discovery of this croc is is interesting. Not because This isn't like new knowledge, but it reasserts that crocs have been a feature of Australian Australia's ecosystem throughout its history. But the crocs that are there now are recent arrivals. They were not part of that long, long history. Crocs have been you know, a major feature of the ecosystem there for 55 million years. But the two crocs that are dominating it now are recent. But this is another croc that's different, not a lineage of the ones there today. Gotcha. Different genus, different species. So they've just been taking it in shifts for 50 million years. Yeah, there's a complicated history of crocs in Australia, but crocs in Australia has been a thing for since forever. Cool. So yeah, it's a, a, a interesting history of crocs, which also leads to the question of whether or not our sw- this Swamp King went extinct because of competition with today's Swamp King, with the saltwater crocodile, which is difficult to say because they definitely, their, their time ranges, I, I believe, do overlap. So it could have been a competition thing, but that's tough to confirm. Yeah. That's just one of, one of the obvious questions that comes up, because it could just as well have been that the environment became less favorable for one and more favorable for the other. Right. There's been a, a good deal of environmental change since the Pliocene. Yes. So just complicated crocs, lots of different crocs of different groups that just continue to make Australia their home. Very cool. Yeah. I like the idea of picturing ecosystems through time where lots of things change, but certain things don't change that much. Yep. That's just Australia every... Time period for the last 50 million years, there's always been a croc. Yeah, well, I mean, when basically you, doing the things that crocs today are doing. And when you're a hot continent, it's a good place for crocs to settle down. Sure is. <laughs> well, my second bit of news today is also a pretty short and quick one. This one is taking us back to the end Cretaceous to explore environmental shifts across the KPG boundary. Neat. Uh, with evidence from plants and isotopes. So the KPG boundary is the boundary in the geologic record between the Cretaceous period and the beginning of the Cenozoic era, which is where all, you know, the dinosaurs went extinct, etc. Episode 5. Huge mass extinction, asteroid impact, most of the dinosaurs went extinct at the time, uh, marine reptiles, pterosaurs, lots of things. Big deal, one of the big five, lots of environmental disturbance, but researchers are always looking for what are the details of what happened in different places. This research is by Robert Bork et al. in P3, uh, which is the nickname given to this journal so that people don't have to say paleogeography, paleoclimatology, and paleoecology every time. And we'll link to a press release on phys.org via McGill University. In this study, they looked at a section of uh, rock layers that covers the KPG boundary, that, that extinction unit, in southern Saskatchewan in Canada. 
And they looked specifically at microscopic plant remains and isotopes in the plant remains and sediments of the area, particularly looking to see how were things different above the boundary and below the boundary, Mm -hmm. which is to say after versus before it. So before and after pictures. (laughs) Of southern Saskatchewan. (laughs) You won't believe how different you look (laughs) after we hit you with an asteroid. The plant remains they were looking at were microscopic, but not like pollen and, and, and tiny fossils, hydrocarbon leftovers from plants. Specifically, oh, wow. uh, molecules called analkanes, which are well-preserved at the site, which are uh, molecules found in plant wax. Oh, like the coating on the leaves and mm-hmm. stuff. So this, you they were able to find these fossilized molecular remains of the plants. And as it turns out, I did not know this, these molecules look different between terrestrial and aquatic plants. Fancy. So they were able to compare, right, do we see a change uh, across the boundary? And they did. After the boundary, the pattern of alkanes indicates an increase in the relative abundance of terrestrial plants. Hmm. That land plants as opposed to plants, you know, in the, the, the rivers and lakes and such, were doing much better. And this is consistent with a study that has found that there's more pollen after the boundary of things like birch and elm trees, or at okay. least things similar to birch and elm trees. Evidence suggesting that forests were doing better. In fact, the title of the press release is something along the lines of when, when the dinosaurs died, forests thrived. That's, that's pretty catchy. And the authors hypothesized that the reason for this is that all the large herbivores were extinct. Ah, see, I was assuming it was all the dead bodies fertilizing, just a mass fertilizer <laughs> dump. No, that's interesting. Yeah, that, it, that you lost your big herbivores, and so land plants weren't being controlled. Yeah, their predators were... Their predators were taken yeah. out. Huh. The other thing that they found, uh, by looking at the isotopes is they found shifts in carbon and hydrogen isotopes, which suggest changes in both precipitation patterns and the composition and distribution of carbon in the environment via plants or the atmosphere or or the ocean, both of which generally suggest that the water cycle and the carbon cycle were disturbed. Mm -hmm, That mm -hmm. basically a wrench was thrown into the water and carbon cycles. But they make the note... That while the plant shift seems to have been somewhat more long-term, the isotope shift, that climate and environmental disturbance, looks, at least based on what they're seeing in their study, like it probably only lasted five to 10,000 years. So that that disturbance recovered relatively quickly. Yeah. Which is a little bit of a surprising find after the whole world fell apart to see that certain aspects of the environment did actually bounce back kind of fast, kind of fast relative to what you'd expect. Yeah. Well, especially cause you know, at least in the books uh, we read as a kid, as kids uh, sound like we're one unified kid as children. It was always proposed that the big rock hit us threw up lots of dust, which darkened the sky for so long that it, everything died for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that it's like, no, actually the climactic shifts bounced back quicker than some of the environmental ones is is intriguing. Yeah. Is at least 
in southern Saskatchewan, because it could have been a regional thing. Yeah. And at least according to their study. Exactly. Like So this, it, it, it also gets into that, that big question that once you have the broad picture, you have to start asking is, were the local changes mm-hmm. in Colorado or in Antarctica or in Saskatchewan or wherever you're looking the same as what was happening everywhere around the globe? Well, we're getting to the um, mass extinction equivalent of the climate debate these days of local versus global climate right. that... Just because it's cold in Georgia or in in England for a few days does not mean it's not warmer everywhere else. Right. So Is just that, because the mm-hmm. carbon and water cycle bounced back quickly in Saskatchewan, if they did, doesn't mean that was the case all over the exactly. planet. Exactly. Like that could have been a rare occurrence or it could have been... It, it may have been representative of the, of the norm, but other places took way longer. Right. Same is true with the forests. Mm-hmm. It could be that the terrestrial plant dominance after the boundary might have been a local thing for this particular site. They're just way more eco-friendly up there. That's neat. And speaking of Canada, my next m- news is also from Canada. Represent. It is about a frozen wolf pup. Oh, right. Recently discovered up in Canada... In the Yukon Territory. Oh, that was from Canada? That was from Canada. Oh, man. My, I, I think I assumed it was a, another Siberian find. Yeah, they talk about that I... in the article. Oh, neat. Oh, well, I can't wait. <laughs> this is research by Julie Meachin et al. in Current Biology. And the article is by our friend by our friend Riley Black in Nat Geo. Cool, cool. Our friend uh, Aaron Woodruff, I believe, worked with Julie. Oh, cool. Yeah. How about that? Wow. We got connections all over the we place. We know so many famous people. <laughs> <laughs> In Canada, a gold miner looking for gold was pressure washing, bla- like water blasting permafrost off of a off of a wall, mm-hmm. and and found something better. Uncovered a mummified, frozen baby wolf pup. Wow! Just like all the movies start, right? Yeah. <laughs> It's the the and Brendan Fraser came in. Rock blasts away and a little wolf paw uncurls from the rock. <laughs> yep. And he It's been frozen in there since it crashed that plane in the Arctic after defeating the Nazis. <laughs> and after discovering this pup, put it in a freezer until paleontologists could take a look at it. Oh, what a guy. So yeah, like go gold miner. Cool. That's better than that baby mammoth that was leaned outside of a <laughs> shop with dogs chewing on it. Ooh. Ooh. This is a juvenile female gray wolf. Cool. So same kind of wolf we have. Canis lupus. Up in that area today. This is from the Pleistocene. So roughly aged is about a 57,000 year old wolf pup. Okay. So... Not bad for a pupsicle. Decently back there. The wolf pup was named Jor in the local language, which means wolf. Nice. And is a very exciting find, as is whenever we find a frozen mummified corpse uh, of a Pleistocene animal. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But as you mentioned, typically... Most of these known are Siberian. Yeah, that's where you get the, the, the frozen mammoths, the rhino, things like uh, the, 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 the cave lions. Yeah, yep. The, yeah. Was the bear? Uh, uh, maybe. I think they're, was, they're, yeah. just, they're cranking out frozen stuff. And it's because the permafrost there is particularly good at preserving things in that way. Permafrost being permanently frozen soil. But finding something like that in the Yukon here in North America, like that's not... 
what we expect to find here. So it's really exciting. You know, we didn't expect to find North American Pleistocene fauna frozen and preserved this way. And it's given them lots of insights into this pup and therefore wolves at the time. It is very well intact. The fur is there. Even the delicate papillae of the tongue, the texture of the tongue. They were able to identify lots of details about this individual's life history. Zhur was about seven weeks old. Oh, a little baby wolf. A pup, a legitimate puppy. Zhur lived during an interglacial period. And they were able to pull some DNA. I was hoping. And get an idea of what wolf population Zhur came from represents. Because though gray wolves are iconic here in North America, they did not evolve here in North America. They came over from Eurasia across the Bering land bridge, the Bering Strait, more than 500,000 years ago. And this wolf came from a population that is not the one that's here today. Ooh. The genetics show that it is not the same. It's it's not the same lineage of gray wolves that's here, that's in the Yukon, more accurately, now. Yeah, so it's like that croc. Yeah. This, this, these were wolves, but then they were ultimately replaced by the modern populations of wolves. Is that, and they were still gray wolves. So same species, but different population, which means a population of gray wolves came into the Yukon and then disappeared for some reason. And then that area was repopulated by gray wolves, probably from down south in North America. Okay. So just that redispersed up there, a new generation, a new population. Yeah, that our modern gray wolves up there aren't descended from this population. Exactly. They are descended from the group that replaced this population. Yeah, so it's yeah. it's not like an extinction of a species, just a population, a locality. Which just goes to show that the history of of megafauna, of animals during the Ice Age, it can be very, very complex. That one would assume it's gray wolf. It's where gray wolves still are from not too terribly long ago. You know, mm-hmm. thousands of years, not millions. But it is not ancestral to the population that we have there. That's a very cool finding. And it's exciting because when it's on that timescale, you can learn about populations mm-hmm. because we have ancient DNA for that. Yes. And that group is, uh, there was a the study, oh, I'm sure we talked about this, but there was a study on mammoth or mastodons uh, not too long ago that did a very similar thing, looking at populations and how they've shifted around over time. Yeah. And so it's, I, I like it because it's a good reminder and evidence of why you can't just make an assumption on what makes sense. Yeah. That. It's, it can be more complicated than that. They were also able to get some life habits information. Zhur would have been just old enough to have barely been past weaning. So stopped feeding on milk and started feeling, feeding on solid food. And according to the geochemical signatures on its teeth, a substantial portion of the meals were from rivers and streams. Okay. So very likely fresh water fish. And could be, as I said, the Chinook salmon that still spawn in that river today. Oh, neat. Which are a big part of the modern gray wolves diet that live in that area. And they think that it's likely Zhur died in a den collapse. Mm-hmm. And that's what preserved it so well. Yeah, I was going to, uh, I was thinking to comment on the fact that we've also found, you know, I mentioned we found the the lions mm-hmm. over in Siberia, which were also 
cubs yep. also young and yeah it makes sense that you're getting these young things frozen because they're already buried yeah <laughs> and then they get the den collapses and now they're stuck and so yeah that yeah this is a kind of common they said they've also seen the similar thing with uh ground squirrels and black-footed ferrets preserved okay. in similar ways that have huh. been buried while underground so yeah ridiculously well-preserved little pup from a area we didn't expect to find a pup preserved this well and they also mentioned a predator, which is yeah. super helpful for learning about the environment. Absolutely. Cool stuff. Great stuff. Hey, good uh, good, good job, Canada, for this news yeah. round. This I was very excited when I, I saw it and I was like, all right, cool. And then when I found it was Canada, I was like, all right, well, now it's my news. Yep. North America uh, representing. Woo! Woo. And with that woo, we can draw the news to a close and get ready to discuss pinnipeds. The weird ocean dogs <laughs> and talk about what they are after this break. Pinnipedia, the pinnipeds, are all of your seals, sea lions, and the walrus. For today's members, these are those charismatic mer-dogs. Yes, carnivorans of the sea. Carnivorans of the sea. They are marine carnivorans and very diverse. As, as far as gr- groups go, they account for, as it put, was put in one source I read, slightly more than one-fourth, 28% of marine mammal diversity. Oh, interesting. So of the mammals that have gone back to the water, they're a quarter of them. Wow, I would not have guessed that. Yeah. That's a lot. Big deal group. Yeah, we pay a lot of attention to whales and dolphins. Exactly, because that's the, the gold standard for... For aquatic mammals. Secondarily aquatic mammals, <laughs> yep. is I am a fish now. But 33 living species of pinnipeds left today, and they're doing decently well. There are some that aren't. Seven are endangered. Two have gone extinct in the last hundred years, not mm. as far back as you'd like. Mm. The Caribbean monk seal and the Japanese sea lion are two that we've done away with. But they are a very successful, diverse group. And, as you mentioned, they are carnivorans. So carnivorans being the group of mammals that is contains the vast majority of the predators, the carnivores, your cats, your bears, your dogs, your weasels, etc., etc. They are within the cananiform side of carnivora the dog side the dog side they're not with the dogs but they're on that side right that that side also has your bears it's Mm -hmm. got your mustelids weasels badgers wolverines etc and those are the two important groups because they are typically placed in the clade arctoidea which is the ursids and the mustelids the bears and the weasels and all their friends okay now which one of those two groups they are to be placed with has been debated and contradictory evidence found for either over the years of studying it. Are you suggesting to me that this highly strangely shaped uh, evolutionarily divergent group of animals leaves us guessing as to where exactly they originated? Yes. Unprecedented. I'm sad to say, I'm (laughs) sad to shock you all. That just like half the taxa we've talked about, they're weird enough that it's hard to tell who they're most closely related to. So... Historically, there has often been a proposal that pinnipeds were actually diphyletic. Two groups 
evolved from two separate origins. Oh, yeah. One being Ursids and one being Mustelids. Right. Some came from bear, yep. bear or bear origins, and some came from weasel cousins. But nowadays, when morphology and molecular studies are taken into consideration, it's agreed that pinnipeds are one group. One origin. And that they came from either Ursids or Mustelids. Okay. It's, we, we still don't know. Yeah. The morphological evidence seems to lean toward Ursids. The molecular evidence seems to lean toward Mustelids. Okay. So, so it sounds like they probably branched off very early. So yes. when we say they came, they didn't evolve from bears. No. But that they, w- they would share an ancestor exactly. with Exactly. Um, with one of those two sides. Their ancestor a, lies somewhere. Yeah. That This is an ancestral split. Near which, or in one of those groups, and we're not sure. Yeah. Pinnipeds themselves, which comes from the Latin for feather-footed. Oh, cool. Since they are flipper-footed, are split into three groups, which are the Phocidae, the true or earless seals, the Otaridae, which are your sea lions and fur seals, mm-hmm. the eared seals, as you'll often hear them called, and the Odobinidae, the walrus. Yes. Sis, when we go with extinct, walrus for today. Right. Wal- walruses, there are multiple walruses, but they are one species today. Yeah. Yep. There are many walruses, but this one is yours. These three groups make up pinnipeds. We'll start with Phocidae, the true earless seals. The hydrodynamic ones. These are what you think of when you think of a seal. Of yeah, they, those cute pictures online of yep. the little roly-poly seals. Sausage body, little, little tube-like torpedo-shaped body with a little snouted face. Little stubby forearms that have little paws on them and then a... Two back feet that look like a fishtail because they're so far back on the body that they stick out. Yep. These are your true seals, actual seals. They're often called earless seals because they do not have external ear flappies. Yeah, the sides of their heads are smooth Smooth. and flat. Smooth. Very, very hydrodynamic. These are by far the most aquatically adapted of the pinnipeds. These are bad on land. Yeah, I was going to say these are best (laughs) in water, worst on land. Yes. These are notable of the three groups for not being able to walk on all fours anymore. Yeah, because like you said, the feet. So, and that's a that's a really good point because I remember when I learned this, and it took me a bit by surprise. Seal, sea lions, and walruses don't swim with their tails, nope. like dolphins and whales and fish and sharks and you know most aquatic things yes. do. Their feet have moved back mm-hmm. to form this. Two flippered appendage, yep, and their tails are reduced, so they're actually kicking their feet to swim like a person with uh, swimming shoes. Exactly, except the seals even went weirder because instead of swimming up and down like mammals should, like the the right way to do it, they swim back and forth, not like a shark. They don't wiggle their body back and forth. They kick the left foot to the right while opening it, and then they open the right foot and kick it to the left, and they kick their feet back and forth. Weird. Yeah. If like if you look that, up a video of a seal yeah, swimming, no, you're saying it, and I can see it. I've seen it. It almost looks like a fish tail, but it's really them alternating their two feet into these alternating flaps, left and right. That's that's wrong. It's wrong. Weird. It's the wrong way for a Weird. mammal to swim, and yet I don't know of anything else that swims that way. The phocids are the most diverse. They're the, <laughs> they are by far. The most wide-ranging and diverse of the pinnipeds. They're doing something right. They account for 19 of the 33 extant species. So vast majority. 
The phocid seals are also split into two groups, the Monacanae, the southern hemisphere seals, and the Phocinae, the northern hemisphere seals. All right. Easy to remember. Yep. And they are fairly well distributed and isolated. There's crossover. There are some that are in one, and we'll talk about our understanding of those groups a little bit more when we go into their fossil record. Your southern seals include things like the monk, elephant, crab eater, and leopard seal. So all the cool ones. <laughs> and the northern hemisphere includes your bearded, hooded, and the rest of the seals. Like right. the five one, or six other types of seals. The that, ones Will doesn't even care about. It's it's like the ringed and the something else and the something else. <laughs> it's it, a much longer list. <laughs> so Quantity over quality. <laughs> With this diversity, they also span a wide range of behaviors and, and, and morphologies. Size-wise, they include some very small and very big members. The ringed seal, being the smallest of the seals in the Arctic, averages about five feet long, meter and a half, and weighs about 100 to 150 pounds, so 50 to 70 kilograms. That's pretty big for the smallest yeah, seal. Exactly. It's not, It's not. That's human-sized. Yeah, interesting. And then on the other end of the scale, we have the southern elephant seal, which can get to averages are up to five meters, 16 feet long, and 3,200 kilograms or 7,000 pounds. Yeah. The biggest carnivorin. Yes. <laughs> yep. That, the largest carnivorin in the world. And maybe in history? It's one of the biggest, if not the biggest pinniped. Real big carnivorin. It is massive. They're so big. And weird. This is a weird group. They're super duper hydrodynamic. You know, they're smooth, no ears. They have their legs sticking back all the time. If they want to come on land, they have to do the worm, the dance, not like, you know, scrunching. (laughs) Uh, But they have to wobble and just wiggle their body over the land. They're very bad. They also have retractable nipples and internal internal testicles. So even that stuff... It tucks away so that when you're swimming, it's safe. Yeah, they are doing the Olympic version of shaving their body, (laughs) but with all the little bumpy bits. So super duper hydrodynamic, much more efficient in the water than most of the other groups, Mm -hmm. but not as fast as some others. So they're much more about efficient swimming, which means a lot of them can dive very deep for their food. Elephant seals have been tracked on satellite, diving ridiculously far down, with some being tracked going down... 400 to 1,000 meters down Wow! to hunt fish and squid. Elephant seals, for anyone who doesn't know, are those weird ones with the giant proboscis, the big nose, flabby, trunk-like thing. Yeah. Go which, to YouTube and look up uh, videos of them fighting cars. Yep. Just big, angry <laughs> brutes. The males, we should the specify. Males. The, the males are the big, angry brutes. Females look like a normal seal. Females are much more reasonable seals. Uh, That nose, I learned while doing research, is not just for display and for noise making. It lets them do their their horrible, like, like, snot roar. It also helps them conserve water. It catches moisture from their exhalation, which lets them conserve water when they're on land during mating time. Because during mating time, they fast from both food and water. And that nose, according to one paper I found can recover up to 71.5% of the water from their exhaled air. That is both impressive and gross. Yeah. 
Yeah. <sighs> oh, look, I'm a get, little thirsty. Get that, get that water back. <laughs> Ugh. Ugh. They're just <laughs> not so, done with you yet. So weird. Weird. Gross. This is also where you get weird ones like the crab eater seal that sieves water through its teeth. Yeah, Google crab eater seal teeth. Uh, so yeah, neat. Check out the blog. Lots of cool pictures. Yep. <laughs> and the the hooded seal that has an inflatable nasal passage that blows up like a balloon yep. to gross people out. <laughs> Super weird group. The next most numerous group of the pinnipeds are the Otariidae, your sea lions and fur seals. The slightly more dog-like seals. Yes. That really lean into that canineiform lineage. They sure do. These are the next most diverse. They represent... 14 to 15 of the species, depending on where you split stuff. Now, the sea lion fur seals is actually how they split as well. Okay. Typically, according to most studies, you have your fur seals, the Arctocephalinae, which, as their name suggests, are characterized by having thick fur over their body for insulation. And then the sea lions, the Otarianae, which are characterized by less fur. Right. <laughs> More reliance on blubber than fur for insulation. Uh, what I like about furred seals and Arctocephalinae is that it, but it, those the common names and the scientific names both describe them as being furry and then means bareheaded. Yes, <laughs> which is phenomenal. It's great, and that though they have two names uh, that sound like they'd be very different, they look basically the same. If any of you know what a sea lion looks like, just picture that a little bit furrier, and you've got a fur seal. That you're good. These are much more mobile on land because their back feet are not just for swimming. They can tuck them under the body and do a little, it kind of looks like Charlie Chaplin, that like side footed walk. Yeah. They well, do this like a quadrupedal penguin walk. Exactly. Yeah. Th this is, this is the, the type of animal uh, among the pinnipeds that you'll see doing shows at aquariums and stuff yep. where they come up onto the land and they waddle back and forth and they wave the flipper and they bounce a ball or whatever. And that's one of the things is waving the flipper. Their forearms are much more flipper-like than the true seals who have actually like little paws almost. They've still got hmm. claws that they can use to maneuver themselves on the land because their front arms aren't used for swimming. Right, they're doing the shark and whale thing, where yeah. it's really the tail doing the work. Exactly. Or in, in their case, the, the weird back and forth yep. foot kick. the feet. Their front arms are just used for steering. Sea lions are swimming with their forearms. Right, they're doing the sea turtle they're thing. They're doing the sea turtle thing, the penguin thing. Mm -hmm. I'm flapping underwater with these, wing, these arms I've turned into underwater wings, and my back feet are steering. Cool. Which means they're not as efficient in the water yeah. as the true seals, but they are much more maneuverable and good at quick bursts. Yeah, so which like, is why they're also fun to watch in the water yeah. at the aquarium. It's just like they're doing these corkscrews, and they have a very mobile skeleton and neck, and you'll watch them, they steer with their face. They just like yeah. will do these crazy U-turns by corkscrewing their neck back on itself, and just, like you feel like they could keep up with a laser pointer no problem. <laughs> These are a bit more morphologically conservative when compared to the other seals. Which means they look more the same. They look more like a normal mammal. <laughs> uh, simplified dentition with sharp, grabby teeth for getting fish. Of the groups, they are the most variable in size because they have the smallest pinniped, the Galapagos fur seal, whose females average out at 60 pounds or 27 kilograms. Ooh. So, I mean, still... A d decent yeah, animal. Good-sized dog. Yeah, a good-sized dog, though. So just a little fur pup, a little sea puppy. 
That's the smallest pinniped, which the is really saying pinniped. something. Yeah. And then the stellar sea lion male, which gets up to a thousand kilograms, twenty two hundred pounds. A, a ton. A ton. That's a that's a cow. That's a there's a big sea lion, <laughs> which is a good time to bring up. It's different than some seals, or more common than it was in seals. All of your sea lions and fur seals are polygynous, meaning that it's one male and a harem of females. Okay, like the elephant seals. Like the elephant seals and a couple of the other seals, which means they're also all sexually dimorphic. Males much larger than the females. Okay. Not all seals is that true. There are some seals where the male and female look the same and they don't have harems. All of your Otariidae have harems and are sexually dimorphic. Presumably they all also have ears. They all also have external ears, flappy ears. Little, little cute flappy ears. Little cute, not really dog ears, they're tinier than dog ears, but little little carnivorous ears. Yeah. It's funny to watch a, a video of sea lions or some certain seals, like leopard seals, mm-hmm, so we'll get this mm-hmm. too, where they'll like swim right up to a camera or something and open their mouth and it's just a dog. <gasps> It's just it's just a big water dog. It really is. Which is simultaneously very endearing and a little bit terrifying. And really the only thing they're missing to be a water dog is those carnassials. They oh, right, because they have the reduced dentition yeah. where it's a lot of pegs, a Good lot of grabby teeth. Piercing bites, as it's yeah. called, grabbing onto something, fish, and swallowing it. They don't slice up big stuff as often. In fact, when leopard seals feed on penguins, they actually do it much more like a croc where they will whip it around and shear pieces of meat off because they have a reduced, simplified, grabbing dentition. Yeah, because living in the ocean makes you mean. Just makes you into monsters. And then last and certainly not least... Speaking of weird teeth. We have the Odobinidae, the walrus, one species. Very possibly the weirdest carnivorous. It's so bizarre. The current species of walrus, Odobinus rosmaris, Lives up north in the Arctic and is consisted of two subspecies, the Atlantic walrus, which is Rosmaris rosmaris, and the Pacific walrus, which is Rosmaris divergens. Most bizarre and distinctive extant pinniped, that's from one of the sources. I agree. (laughs) This is agreed upon the weirdest, most unique pinniped. Uh, They're very big. These are getting from... 800 to 1,200 kilograms, which is like 1,800 to 2,500 pounds. So again, cows. Cows, with some big males of the Pacific subspecies weighing 2,000 kilograms or 4,000 pounds. Big animals. Two tons. That's so bigger than my car. Yes. Thick, blubbery insulation. Little fur. Basically no fur on the skin. Yeah, except for those whiskers. Except for those big whiskers, which we'll talk about, the whiskers of these pinnipeds. Uh, they're also weird for the fact that they molt their skin. Oh, they, they do. That's right. Get rid of big layers. They're not doing it like a lizard, but we molt our skin all the time. We just do it in flakes. They do it as like one big molt against the rocks. And yeah, just all this dead pinnipeds, all this walrus skin floating around. It's so weird. Weird. They also have an air sac under their throat that they can inflate to act as a flotation device so they can sleep in the water with their heads above the water. In case of a water landing. Yep. You just, and you blow the whistle uh, when you see someone come by. <laughs> and then, of course, I, I guess we should mention they have an enormous pair of canines that have been turned into downward-facing curved tusks. I've heard about this. Just these massive two swords, spears, 
sticking out of their face. Sticking out of their face. In dramatic contrast to the rest of their teeth. Which are very reduced, flat, simplified, molariform teeth yeah, on the sides. little flat... Pegs. Uh, short, flat peg teeth. That they don't really use. It, they're just kind of there for basic chewing. Yeah. Walruses are one of the handful of mammal groups that have basically stopped using teeth for eating. Yep. It's super weird. Very strange. Their body shape is also unique compared to the other pinnipeds. I'll say. In the fact that they... On land, walk like a sea lion. They can turn their feet Mm -hmm. under them. In the water, though, they swim more with their feet, with their back feet. Huh. So they swim a bit more like true seals. So they walk like sea lions and swim like seals. Yeah. Best of both worlds. Yes, because they said, well, why should I uh, conform to one or the other? (laughs) I'm the weirdest pinniped. Did you not see my tagline? They also lack external ears, so they do not have flappy ears. And are famous for being muscalivores, eating shellfish. Yeah, mollusks. Mollusks. They go down shallow water, go down to the bottom, find clams, bivalves, and hunt them by creating such a strong suction with their muscular tongue and vaulted roof of their mouth, Mm -hmm. this raised roof of their mouth, such a strong suction to just the meat out of the clams. Yeah, they just vacuum the food out of the shell. Because why do you need fancy tools for opening the shell when you just have a hoover as a face? But they also will eat other stuff. Their diet's actually very diverse. Hmm. One list I found included shrimp, crabs, tube worms, soft corals, and sea cucumbers. So though they're famous for being muscalivores, they will eat a lot of different stuff. I, I assume that they slurp all of these things up. Oh, yeah. No, it's a nightmare vacuum for all of them. That the shrimp are just fleeing from this. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. And as we've mentioned with many of the other groups, very sexually dimorphic and polygynous. Males have big, long tusks. Females have shorter tusks. And males have lots of females. That's a very common thing among pinnipeds. Hmm. So quickly... I wanted to mention some of the shared things that they've adapted to go back to the water. Yeah. They're, they're, how have they transformed the weasel slash bear slash dog body shape mm-hmm. into a... Murdog. D- d- bear dolphin. Bear dolphin. <laughs> <laughs> so these bear fins have streamlined bodies, even though like some of them are just really bumpy and lumpy lumpy (laughs) uh their bodies are overall torpedo shaped yep very flexible necks as as i was mentioning with sea lions flipper like limbs of course reduced teeth better for grabbing fish for most of them most pinnipeds are fish or something fish like eaters uh penguins are fish like yeah, they benefit from having lots of stabby teeth mm-hmm. to hold on to slippery things. With a few specialists like the walrus who's reduced their teeth and the crab-eating seal who does not eat crabs but sifts krill out of the water with teeth that are shaped like combs yeah. and some of the coolest teeth ever. One of my favorite notes is their eyes have become very specialized, not for water vision, but for water-air vision. Yep. Because they need to be able to see in both and they don't have the croc option of just doing a, a eye lens, a third eyelid over it. Yeah, and they're not like whatever that salamander is that has... Split. Split. Yep. It has water pupils on the bottom and yep. air pupils on the top. <laughs> Basically, the issue that our mammal eyes face 
with going from water to air is if we have powerful eyesight in the water, the corneas that we would have would be way too powerful in the air. Uh, myopic, as one thing put it. Hmm. it would Our vision would not be good in the air. It'd be overcompensating. So the solution that pinnipeds have come to, seals famously, is they basically have flattened their cornea, the front of your eye in front of the lens, just flattened it. It's basically useless and made a spherical lens, much like a fish. Hmm. So it just made the lens more powerful, which kind of gives them even vision, both in air and in water. Not great, not bad, but they are they see about as well on land as they do underwater. Cool. Which is also what gives seals their limpid pool eyes. Uh, Flat corneas, round lenses. Because it's not an eyeball. Yeah. <laughs> it's a flat front. Exactly. So it makes their uh. eye... That's what makes it look all watery and sweet. Yeah, yeah. It's not a defensive mechanism against clubbing. It is their weird eyes. I guess it's still an eyeball, but a weird cornea. Yes. It looks like one of those... It's it's a ball with a, a stand part of it so that it can sit flat on your desk. Yep. They do have strong senses. Other than that, they have good hearing. They can hear underwater. They have a good sense of smell, which does not help under the water because they close their nostrils. But probably their most interesting sense is their whiskers. Yeah, their vibrissae. Vibrissae are extremely sensitive. Way more sensitive than the whiskers of most terrestrial mammals. Ten times the innerviation, the nerve endings there, the, the nerve focus. Their whiskers are also different than your cat or dog's whiskers, which are round like our hair in cross section. Theirs are flattened, oval-shaped, and almost flat in some groups. Huh. And these are so sensitive, and their shape specialized, that they can sense vibrations in the water. Now, they can do something particularly interesting, because it's not just that they're sensing when vibrations are coming near them or around them. They can follow the patterns in the water of past vibrations. Like the wake? The wake of things swimming through the water... They can track it, as one source said, like a dog sniffing a scent trail. Whoa. And they're so accurate, some research has suggested, like findings of testing them in water mazes with things like small submarines and other seals, that they can even detect the size of the fish that left the trail to maybe be able to tell what fish they're following. So a sea lion is like the carnivorous version of Aragorn. Yes. Who's like... Three fish passed here, one large one, and two children. Yep. It laid over here. They had a fight. Mm Mm-hmm. And this is basically what pinnipeds have done in place of developing echolocation. Uh, Like your famous cetaceans. Yeah, yeah. Because no matter how good your vision is in water, if the water's murky and dark, then it doesn't really matter. Yeah. So you need some sort of non-vision sense to navigate. Sharks have their Mm -hmm. electrical senses... Oh, cool. And it's good enough that some tests with blind seals have been able to forage just fine. Wow, so they're daredevil. They're daredevil. Animals. Yeah, so they're weird, weird animals that are even weirder, arguably, when you take a look at their fossil record. What a cool group. I, yeah, I love them. I like a, I like a group that has been uh, given a makeover head to toe to make them do something totally different. Mm-hmm. And I like that all pinnipeds... And yet they all behave in the water fairly, really uniquely. <laughs> yeah, it's not like, and this this may be a, a simplified ignorant statement, but my general understanding of like 
whales and mm-hmm. dolphins is that they basically are all moving the same way. They're, like the once you get uh, past the head, the back of the body <laughs> is roughly similar. Yeah, but your pinnipeds have a. a adapted three very distinct styles of moving and living yeah it's like you could go up to a seal and it's like so do you walk around like a sea lion and they go walk (laughs) what (laughs) what is this walk you walking around with their what do you call them (laughs) and so i like how weird they become from one another not just from other mammals yeah it's a it's a more diverse group well you'd imagine that specializing Mm -hmm. like they have into a particular unusual niche for a group like this would limit you. Yes. You can only make this body style work in this kind of lifestyle in a particular way, but they've managed to find multiple ways to do it. Yeah, the walrus heard that and said, hold my teeth. (laughs) Hold my iceberg. (laughs) Well, so far in discussing the extant species, the living species, we have compared them to both Aragorn and Daredevil, and we have talked about them fighting cars and being living vacuums. So I'm very intrigued yeah, to learn how they got like this. <laughs> Wouldn't we like to know? What made you this way? Let's talk about that after the break. The fossil record of pinnipeds is worldwide and not very good. Mm. Though it is widespread, and though this is a diverse group, they don't fossilize regularly, at least so far that we've found. Typically, they fossilize in shallow marine rocks, as you'd expect. Makes sense. But our record and understanding, therefore, of them is vastly incomplete. Which is true of all fossil records, but noticeably so here. Which means there's a lot of mysteries that we don't really have good answers for. Yeah, like Like, you said, it's not like whales where we have a lovely transition mm -hmm. from ancestors to current. Yeah, as you mentioned, it's much more like bats or pterosaurs where we have some cool examples. We have some ideas here and there, but a lot of the sections of like, who did they evolve from? we know the overall group, but not any more than that. So well, what did the earliest ancestors look like? We have ideas, but we don't have necessarily the earliest ancestors. Mm-hmm. So there are just some questions. Uh, one example that uh, uh, one of the sources mentioned that I just found kind of interesting is that modern pinnipeds swallow gastroliths, oh. swallow stones for their stomach, which can help with digesting food, but also help with ballast in the water. Uh, lots of aquatic animals do this. We've never found that in relation to fossil pinnipeds. Okay. So like... Not, not entirely surprising. Gastroliths are very difficult to identify yeah. definitively. But we've found it with many other groups that yeah. we the know. Dinosaurs, crocs, I believe. I think so. So it's just like, we're missing a lot of things that we'd expect to find yeah. with this group. So the fossil record's a bit rough, which means I we can't take you through a nice, you know, story of their evolution like we do with some other groups. But we can give you an idea of what the diversity was like in the fossil record as far as we understand. Now, with all of that, like, doom and gloom, bad fossil record intro, we do still have an idea of what the potential ancestors to pinnipeds were like or may have been like and some potential candidates for close relatives of their ancestors. 
When it comes to the early evolution of pinnipeds, as we mentioned, which group of carnivorans that they are most closely related to, the mustelids or the ursids, is debated. Somewhere within the arctoids is where their ancestors would lie, and there have been candidates from both the ursid and mustelid side <laughs> proposed. On the bear-like amphicynodonts, you have Colpanomus, which is from the early Miocene, and was actually interpreted as a marine raccoon relative initially, and has since been posited as Amphicynodontinae, which is a, a group of the Ursids hypothesized to be where pinnipeds arose from, potentially. Okay. This one has a big, powerful skull, downturned snout, binocular vision with broad, crushing teeth, likely eating hard-shelled marine invertebrates. Okay, kind of fits the, the coast bear yeah, image. The reconstructions I found of it just look like an aquatic bear, a swimming bear. Mm-hmm. So literally starting as a bear. Yeah, if a this wash is, bear, if you will. Yes. <laughs> if this is indeed one of the ancestors. But there have also been candidates from the much more otter-like on the mustelid side of things. Mm-hmm. The Sementorids, which includes... Potomotherium, which is very otter-like. The river beast. The river beast. This is also Miocene, lower Miocene, from freshwater deposits in France. This would have been a five-foot-ish, so meter and a half long, otter-ish creature. Long, slender body, short legs, flexible backbone, streamlined. Likely a good swimmer, but not quite the flippered pinniped shape. This group also includes... Quigila darani, which is one of the most recent discovered, 2007. And if you just go looking up pinniped ancestry, is the one that will often be pointed to as the most likely candidate for a good representative of what early pinniped ancestors look like. Okay. Not an ancestor. They don't think this is ancestral, but this one has all, checks a lot of the boxes for what we'd expect to find. This is Miocene again from Canada. So 20 to 24 million years old, very, very otter-like, short, powerful legs, long tail. This one would have been just about a meter in length, so three feet-ish. Large infraorbital foramen, hole in the skull for nerves, likely going to whiskers. Okay. So another mustachioed mammal. It looks like it was good in the water, short, powerful femurs. The bones on its toes, on its phalanges, were flattened somewhat, which is highly suggested of webbed feet. Yeah, we see that in, in a bunch of other animals. Mm-hmm. Not flippers still, but webbed feet. So very, very otter-like. But when you get to the skull, you see some signs of the pinnipeds. And this is what makes this one so exciting, or has, has really shined this one as a good potential ancestor example, or even close cousin of their ancestors. The shape of the skull and the teeth look very seal. Okay. Certain features on the skull, you know, diagnostic features match up with seals. It also shares similarities with Colponomus and Potamotherium. So it, it may be that these all of these proposed ancestors may group out differently with this more recent discovered animal. And according to its anatomy, it may have swam with all four feet. Like a plesiosaur? Huh, maybe like a plesiosaur <laughs> or like doggy paddling kind of. Oh, that makes more sense. You know, some kind of thing. 
They didn't describe what the swimming would be like, but it looks like it may have been adapted where all four limbs were used during swimming more actively, mm-hmm. which means that if this is an ancestral state for pinnipeds, swimming with your back feet and swimming with your front legs could evolve from this one ancestor very easily. Yeah, those are both ancestral. Those are both ancestral because all four might have been used. Interesting. So it could answer why we have half the pinnipeds swimming with flapping like birds and half of them kicking like fish mm-hmm. is that they diverge from one who was doing a bit of both of that. Very cool. Now, once again, not a direct ancestor. This would have branched off from the lineage that led to pinnipeds, mm-hmm. but it has all the features we'd ex- we were expecting to see in a pinniped ancestor. Okay. So it may be a very good stand in. It also suggests that if indeed pinniped ancestors could be represented by this animal that they went through a freshwater transition before they became marine. Okay. That they probably started in rivers and lakes becoming aquatic and then moved out to sea. Gotcha. Which then eventually leads us to the pinnipedimorpha. Cool. Which includes all of our modern pinnipeds and their now extinct relative groups. I imagine that it must be very challenging to identify which of these ancient things are the pinniped relatives, not just because it's often challenging yep. to do that, but because it seems like carnivorans, uh, bears and weasels especially, are not strangers to kind of adapting to the water a bit every now and then anyway. Yeah, they seem very like, comfortable. Polar bears mm-hmm. are very good in the water. Uh, among the mustelids, you've got otters, you've got, aren't there sea minks? Yeah, I think so. Uh, there's a few groups of mustelids that are also pretty good in the water. Mm-hmm. So trying to, every every time you'd mention one of those, I'd be like, oh, that's a cool pinniped, possible pinniped relative, or just one branch of mustelids that kind of was a little bit aquatic. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> how, which of the otter-ish animals yeah. could you have evolved from? Yeah, it's a weird trend among, especially the, the arctoid side of carnivorans. Yeah, but I'm excited to hear uh, uh, that it sounds like at least one of them has a seal-like skull. That's always a cool, yes. that when you start getting into the nitty-gritty of, no, no, it actually has these specific, unique features in the bone. Yes, and there are some like very standardized, diagnostic, identifying features in the skull of pinnipeds that are too complicated anatomically for me to try to explain. Right. So I... It has those features. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> Go ask a pinnipedologist. Yeah. Uh, and if you just look it up, they will almost all list it out in almost the exact same words every time because they are very, very diagnostic and easily cool. listed, but I don't know what they mean because I'm not a pinnipedologist. <laughs> Pinnipedomorpha, according to molecular data, likely diverged from the rest of carnivora about 50 million years ago. Whoa. So a while ago. So all the examples of possible ancestors or cousins you were just mentioning were like 20, 25 million years ago. Yeah. But the roots go way back. And that's also, we don't have any of that. So we're running into that issue of, you sure should have diverged back here. Right. We don't see you in the fossil record until way up here. Right. So that's a lot of missing data. Yes, a classic example of a disagreement between the fossils and the genetics. Exactly. Pinnipedomorpha splits up pretty nicely into five major lineages. The three modern ones that Mm -hmm. we discussed, your sea lions, your seals, your walruses now. And then two extinct groups, 
the Analiarctines, which is the more basal of the lineages, and the Desmatophosidae, the Desmatophosids, which are a bit more closely related to our modern groups, our remaining groups. Puigila helped build a new family tree for Pinnipedomorpha, which grouped Puigila in Analiarctines in a group that also included a couple of the other potential ancestors, the Potamotherium, and a group called Anphictoceps, which was previously classified with Ursids. Okay. So it, so, it certain things are, have been shuffled shifted around Shifted and a couple of things got pulled into Pinnipedomorpha with that new analysis, including one of the other proposed ancestors. So jumping in, let's look at some of those extinct groups. The Inaliarctines were a early diverging group of the the earliest diverging group, really, of unambiguous stem pinnipeds. Like definitely pinnipedomorpha. We're definitely looking at early pinnipeds. And now. so that's this is the earliest group that we can for sure say. And I've heard of an Aliarctos. Yes. So this is the, this is a, a creature with some fame. Yeah, this is that's the most well known one, and it's fairly well known out of the fossil groups. These likely or, originated in the northern Pacific, eastern northern Pacific, somewhere during the mid to late Oligocene, so around thirty million years ago, give or take a bit. In Aliarctos, famous genus of this group from late Oligocene, early Miocene, so 24, 22 million years ago, known from California. Like so many. Like yes. so many of these fossils. Absolutely. North America seems to be where Pinnipedomorpha really got its start. Cool. Uh, now, where they moved from to get to where they are now is much more heavily debated, but Northern Hemisphere and around... North America seems to be the the common or originating spot. A little bit of a little bit of home home continent pride. Woo! That's a cool set of creatures. Yeah, I'm proud to have them. These closely resemble many of our modern pinnipeds. Like they have the pinniped body shape going for them. Flexible spine, flipper-like limbs. They have a bit more heterodont, differentiated teeth than the standardized homodont. You know, just sharp peg-like teeth of today's pinnipeds. They still have their slicing carnasial premolars. Okay, so they, they had that. And as we've discussed in the Cats and Dogs episodes, 93 mm-hmm. 94, that's a defining feature of carnivora. Exactly. That set of teeth, that those shearing teeth in the back, which the modern pinnipeds have lost because mm-hmm. they're not using their teeth for that. Exactly. So that's something they still retained, though... In other species, there does seem to be a trend of them leaning away from the shearing bite in this group. So we're already seeing them go toward more modern pinniped dentition. Cool. These were not particularly big. Estimated at least one species, one well-known species, about meter and a half in length. You know, so four, five-ish feet. You know, moderate-sized. A minute pinniped. A minute pinniped. A miniped. All four limbs were adapted as flippers, were swimming features, and they seem like they could be able to swim with both front or back, uh, though maybe slightly more specialized for the four limbs, for more sea lion-like swimming. And their high limbs do look like they were able to bring them up and walk a bit more efficiently, and even may have been more apt on land than today's pinnipeds. So probably spent a little more time on land than your average seal or sea lion. Uh, Not quite as aquatic, perhaps. 
So much so that some uh, deeply grooved points of the articulation for the fingers, the toe bones up front, might be evidence that they could even grasp prey. Ooh. Use their flippers a bit more like hands. Like still. some sort of creature from the Black Lagoon. Yeah, just <laughs> with their big <laughs> flipper f- f- fingers. And there's evidence that there is skull size differences between males and females. Oh, cool. Which may be a sign of sexual dimorphism, which is very common in today's pinnipeds and almost always syncs up with polygynous mating behaviors. Right. One male, lots of females. That is very, very consistent in today's groups that the more sexually dimorphic they are, the more of a harem they have, and the less sexually dimorphic they are, the more monogamous, the more minogynous, where they are just one-on-one. So the fact that we're seeing signs of sexual dimorphism here may mean that that sort of mating behavior is very early on in pinniped evolution. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. Now, there is some evidence that sexual dimorphism does not necessarily sync up with the evolution of the harem-like mating behavior, that it could have been environmental reasons, like niche partitioning between male and female, and then the harem came by after that. So that it's a side effect of the sexual dimorphism. Right, right. So can't say for sure that they had harems at this point, but maybe. Our other group of extinct pinnipeds, the Dasmatophosids, slightly more recent, we're getting toward the middle to, to more recent Miocene, so 23 to 10 million years, still very heavily centered on the western United States, California area, but also some known in Japan across the way. These are also our first group of large pinnipeds. Getting bigger. Now we're getting big. Still generally look a lot like just your general pinnipeds, your standard seal, sea lion-ish. These, though, are characterized by longer skulls, elongated faces, with relatively large eyes and bulbous cheek teeth, which may be indicative of deep sea foraging, deep water. Hard shell things. Going after hard shell stuff. Big eyes for seeing in dark water, tough teeth. We're now getting to pinnipeds that are up to three meters long. Now we're talking. 10 foot long animals. There are some cranial material that even suggests bigger individuals in Japan, so. Now we're getting large aquatic predators. Many of these also show signs of sexual dimorphism, so it still seems to be a very consistent pinniped feature. There are some, like the allodesmines, which seem like they may have been, ecologically at least, very similar to elephant seals. Oh, cool. Yeah, so even behaving like some of our big modern pinnipeds. Uh, There's even one that was suggested to have a proboscis, a trunk, though at least according to the source I read that in, it seems unlikely. But these also look like they would have been swimming with the back legs. So even swimming very much like your true seals, your elephant seals. So these may have been deep diving predators like elephant seals getting up to not quite elephant seal size, but our first ones to kind of breach into that territory. Yeah. start Starting to feel like a bit of the modern diversity. Exactly. But a whole different group that was doing it, which is a convergence with our big weird ones today. This group, the Dismatophosids, have also been suggested to maybe be ancestral to some of our modern groups. The Phocidae potentially have an, an, an ancestor connection to this group, but the taxonomy for this group, as with many pinniped groups, is highly, highly debated. Yeah, I it's would imagine. 
also been connected to the sea lions and walrus side of things. So it's not sure, but there have been sources that have put this as maybe ancestral to some of our today groups. Okay. Yeah. And then we have the pinnipeds. Today's pinnipeds. Because we've been talking about pinniped on Morpha. Now we're in pinnipeds. Right. True pinnipeds like we know them today. We see this group starting to split up into the, the groups we recognize about 33 million years ago. Or evidence for them splitting up about that far ago. Like molecular evidence? Molecular evidence. Because, once again, our earliest definite pinniped fossils are only about 20 million years old. So they likely were splitting up into the groups we recognize way before we have representatives of those groups. But as we take a look into those groups, our Fossidae, the true seals, we see our first definite true seal, the Afrofossa, about 19 to 14 million years ago in Africa. Okay. Now, that doesn't mean they started in Africa. Right. But that's the oldest one we've got, that's or one of the oldest we at found least. It. Which is exciting because... According to molecular evidence, that means it's just shortly, just a little bit after, slightly younger than when we think the two main groups, the northern and southern seal groups, split. Oh, okay. So this might be a very early member of the southern seal group. Mm-hmm. Though, both groups are thought to have their origins in the North Atlantic. Now, this is a great example of where our understanding of how these groups originate and how they got to where they are today, can get very confusing. Because a recent study, this year, 2020... Last year. Last year, 2020. (laughs) I know, I have to get used to saying that. Uh, Yeah, just this last year, 2020, there was an article, a research, about three new species of seal identified from the Monacanae, the southern hemisphere seals, which had always been believed to have evolved up north and then crossed down to the southern hemisphere early in their lineage, but that they had evolved and diversified up north. And so that was kind of the thought in that of their lineages, two went down south, which are the two lineages for the elephant and leopard seals and their cousins. And then one, the monk seal, which is the most basal of your southern seals, stayed north. They're actually in the Bahamas and an extinct one in the Caribbean. And according to the fossil record... It seemed, and the fact that monk seagulls are still in the Northern Hemisphere today, that they've always remained in the North. Mm -hmm. The true North. The seal of the North. Of these new species, one of them is a monk seal found in New Zealand. Hmm. So... Oops. (laughs) Where it was using its whiskers to track the movements of fish. Right. (laughs) After they were taken by orcs. And so, these are about three million year old seals. This new species of monk seal... Eomonicus belligerensis is about two and a half meters, so eight-ish feet long, and reveals that all three of those lineages of the southern seals were in the south together at one time. So our understanding of one of them remaining in the north seems to make less sense and may actually mean that they did the bulk of their diversifying in the south. Mm, uh, one of those cases, again, where our modern distributions mm-hmm. are not reflective of the history. And they've, they've moved around over time. Looked like they matched up with the fossil record until one new fossil came up. So right. that's the issue when we have a very incomplete fossil record is any new seal fossil could suddenly 
threw a whole wrench into what seemed to make perfect sense. And with this new data, it suggested that seals, true seals, have crossed the equator at least eight times. (laughs) (laughs) So the nice, evenly northern, southern seal groups may be complete nonsense as we learn more. This definitely shows that it's way more complicated than it seems like it had been. Which is fun. Which is awesome. That's more fun. But, speaking of diversifying in the South, South American phocid seals are fairly well-known and very diverse. So we'll talk about them for a little bit, because they have some interesting members. Hadrocurus from the Miocene to Pliocene in Peru is interesting for a few reasons. It's a, a seal, but it does display sexual dimorphism. Seems to. Similar to some of your modern seal groups with, like, the leopard seals in them. has a long skull, heavily built jaws, robust snout, strong neck, and masticatory muscles, so chewing muscles, which suggests tough food. Once again, like, mollusks and echinoderm shelled invertebrates. So we've got another tough-fooded seal, but then we've got some smaller members. One, Australophoca, is smaller than any known extant southern seal or fossil member. So like one of the smallest seals there in South America during the Miocene. But one of the weird things is though during this age of the Miocene, true seals were very diverse around South America. Today, sea lions and fur seals are much more well known in that area. Mm -hmm. Once again, Things have shifted around. Yep. And this one has an interesting potential reason. It seems like the transition may have been pretty rapid from the domination of one group to the other. And changing sea levels during the Pleistocene may be the cause because it would have reduced the number of haul-out sites that a true seal would need and increased the number of rocky shores that a sea lion would be fined on. And so it may have just made it less accessible to true seals versus sea lions. They had to go find easier shores. Mm-hmm. And so now South America looks very different because its shorelines changed. And speaking of our Otariidae, the fur seals and sea lions, these also seem to have started up north in the northern Pacific, likely splitting from the walruses some 19 million years ago. And we see some of the oldest fossil representations of them about 17 to 15 million years ago in the Miocene of California, in the form of Eotaria, Crypta, and Citrica, which were both fairly small in their overall body size. And one of the next oldest ancestors, also in California, from slightly younger, 10 to 7 million years old, is Pithanotaria, which was also fairly small, which may mean that our, our fur seal sea lion lineage started off tiny, like as far as pinnipeds go. These would have been about the same size as today's Galapagos, for the fur seal, which was the smallest pinniped today, or at least one of them, with males being about meter and a half, so five feet long, and females being meter and a quarter, slightly shorter. Uh, males today only get up to about 64 kilograms or 140 pounds, and females are about half that. So, itty bitty. So it looks like our eared seals got a fairly small start before they diversified into bigger members that we have today. But they also have members that suggest that they started out with sexual dimorphism as a common thing. The Lazo Leon was a member from the late Miocene, early Pliocene, which shows excessive sexual dimorphism, like noticeable, extreme sexual dimorphism, which 
once again suggests that pinnipeds may have been doing the harem breeding system. Pre, you know, this is more recent than some others, but throughout their evolution and history, whether it's common ancestor keeps getting convergently evolved is harder to say, but that's just a thing pinnipeds do. Yeah, it's just one of the the ways to be a pinniped. Yeah, throughout time, it's just every group keeps coming back to it. And then finally, last and best, the walruses. The Odobenidae today has one species with two subspecies, but used to be much more diverse, much more widespread, much more numerous. It was a world of walruses. Yeah, walruses that were not all doing the walrus thing, which is also one of the coolest things. There were walruses that looked like today's walrus. There were ones that were kind of like today's walrus, but... Weird, and then there were others that were just seals, hmm. you know, that just hunted like other seals, that just had faces pretty much like other seals, with nothing weird about their teeth at all. So walruses were basically running the gambit of pinniped morphology, and we're left with just one of the very weird ones. Not the weirdest, but one of the very weird <laughs> ones. Your earliest odobinids were small-bodied, early Miocene. You get things like Proneotherium and Prototaria, which had unenlarged canines, which I love that description. Normal canines. (laughs) Normal canines, (laughs) not tusks. They had premolars, narrow premolars that were leaning toward molarization. So they were getting a little bit kind of the walrus cheek teeth, but pretty much looked like they were still just fish eaters. So just living like a normal seal we see this group diversify a lot in the late miocene and you get the the dozignathinae are our first large body walruses only known from up north and we do see enlarged canines so we start to see walrus like canines on all the canines all of the like upper and lower and bottom yes four tusks Four tusked walruses. That's too many tusks. That's it was they already had too many tusks. Now they have <laughs> twice that. So elongated upper and lower canines with very stocky forelimb bones, which may represent that they were forearm swimmers. And still though in this group, what seems to be diverse lifestyles, you get some Gomphotaria, which shows excessive tooth wear and seems like it may have been going after shelled tough things. It even shows evidence of sediment ingestion. Hmm. But so, like pu- chewing the shell. Yeah, may, and it may be that it's scooping up shells or mm-hmm. and chewing, but it's going after shells. So it's a little bit more walrus-like. It mm-hmm. th- may not be vacuuming them necessarily the same way. But then we have others that show different toothware facets, sharp facets, that suggest that they were hunting fish in open water. Like a normal aquatic creature. Yeah, so even with the four tusks, they weren't like, all right, well, we all have to do the same thing now. Right, they right. They were still doing different seal stuff. Which makes sense, because yeah. those walrus tusks today are not for hunting. They're for other stuff. Mm-hmm. They're for uh, display, or they're for landscaping. Yes, exactly. <laughs> for fighting polar bears. This group also includes Pontolus magnus, which is... A giant, long-headed walrus. I like everything about this. Yep. Long head. The head was up to 60 centimeters long, two feet long, with the body getting up to six meters long, making it the biggest walrus ever. 
Which is a statement. Which is a statement. Six meters long. Yep. This is from the upper Miocene of Oregon. And yeah, would have looked like just a, a giant walrus, but instead of big long tusks, it would have had four decently sized canines and it's on this massive surfboard of a head. So this is a blubber bear with four tusks the size of a great white shark. With like a croc face. <laughs> cool. Yeah, right? Man, the past was the coolest time. Now you may think, all right, we're getting tusked walruses. But even the tusks with walruses is not as simple as it seems. These tusks don't seem to be related to our tusks at all. A recent study last year in 2020 identified three new species of walrus that are about 5 to 10 million years old. One which was semi-tusked had longer teeth and two others that didn't have tusks, all of which predated today's tusked walruses and were in different groups. A, A separate evolution of tusks in walruses. And so this goes to show that the tusks we see in different walrus groups are convergent, not necessarily ancestral. And it kind of brings the point, one of the uh, authors made the point that everyone assumes the tusks must be the most important teeth on the walrus, but it's actually a fairly recently evolved trait. And so may not actually be that crucial to being a walrus at all. It sounds more and more like everything about modern pinnipeds, previous pinnipeds would look at and think was weird. Yeah. Where they are, what they're doing, Mm -hmm. what their walruses look like. Modern day pinnipeds are just a bad example of pinniped diversity through time. It's it's our it's our go to point to make that what we see today does not necessarily tell you anything about what they used to be like. And then we get to the odobinine walruses, the long tusked walruses, which includes our modern walrus. But not all of these had tusks. Like the earliest members still didn't have tusks. Hmm. This developed a little bit later on in the group, so. When we're still in the late Miocene, the earliest members, no tusks. That's members like Gavugus. And it's not really until we get into the Pliocene that we start seeing members of this group developing tusks. And even still, it's it's like slowly developing, you know, tusks. We get Ontocetus, which is also bigger than today's walrus. It's about 15% bigger. And it had little short curved tusks, procumbent tusks, as I saw them described. And then you get things like Valinictus, which is long-tusked like today's walrus. It's a sister task taxon to our modern walrus, so it's very closely related. And at least one of its species lacked all other teeth. Hmm. All the... its cheek teeth, aside from those tusks, were gone. The logical extreme of a walrus. Yes, which they make the point that even today's walruses don't use those cheek teeth for chewing. So they don't need them for feeding most of the time. And it has all the other signs of a vaulted roof of the mouth, of it was doing the suction feeding thing. It was just even more hyper-specialized at it than our walruses today. Cool. So yeah, like... Maybe because it was competing with other walruses and had to specialize. Ooh, yeah. So walruses are... That's the crown jewel for me, is not only are they super weird, but they were even weirder than our weird one today. And... Even when, like, even diverse compared to our weird one, it's just, their group hits all the marks of pinnipeds, (laughs) and then the things ours does, but more weird. Yeah. There there was, there were a group of weird pinnipeds that among them developed weird 
forms, and we have one today, but it's not the only or weirdest one. Yes! Walruses. How great is that? It's it's fantastic. (laughs) What a great group of animals. And that's going to basically bring us to the end of... Our, our current discussion with pinnipeds, hopefully... It's been a good overview. Yeah, hopefully we'll be able to go more in detail to this in the future as we discover more stuff. But this is definitely one of those groups where we are lacking big chunks of the conversation to be had about this group. So hopefully in the future, next time we do an episode on them, there'll be a whole new yeah, the, bits of the story. They'll find a new part of the world... That starts spitting out pinniped fossils. Yeah, we need to find our like pinniped desert. or something where all the pinnipeds, uh, the new pinnipeds start being found. Yeah. But before we sign off, we have a patron question. Hey, we do. That's right. Uh, patrons of a certain level can ask us questions to answer on the podcast, which we like to do uh, pretty much every episode these days. Yeah. Would you like to read our question for us? No. Okay, I'll do it. Will this, you read our this, question? <laughs> read our question. <laughs> This, I don't know, can you? This <laughs> question is from Zabby, and it's about dinosaurs. Cool. Zabby asks, I want to know if there's any evidence of pack hunting amongst the species of Carcharodontosaurus. Carcharodontosaurus uh, being, of course, the African group of very, very large theropod dinosaurs uh, that were not, you know, Tyrannosaurs or mm-hmm. Spinosaurs or Allosaurs, although I think kind of close. Zabby continues, given that its closest relatives, Giganotosaurus and Mabusaurus, are thought to have exhibited a degree of cooperative hunting. Cool question. Good question. Cool dinosaurs. Yes. Carcharodontosaurus uh, has for a very long time been one of my favorite big dinosaurs. Yeah, they're very I'm a cool. big fan. Cool dinosaurs. They're a cool dinosaur with, though a hard to say, cool name. Carcharodontosaurus. And, Which is and Giganotosaurus. The Carcharodontosaurid dinosaurs, that's a, one of the yeah. prerequisites is that you have to have a, a long, difficult yep, same yep. name. Well, and I like the name because it's the same beginning, same front root as Great Whites. Because yeah, it, it's it, yeah. describing their shark-like teeth. Yep. <laughs> Which, oh, that's fantastic. So, the the Mapusaurus and Giganotosaurus that they mention are the ones, and I've see, I found other people asking similar questions. So, like, this is a, a question based on a bit of research on Mapusaurus that suggests potential social, maybe pack hunting behavior. Okay. So there's no, I, I didn't find any evidence for Cacarodontosaurus mm-hmm. when looking this up. I've not heard of any. Not heard of any, but there's no like evidence against, you know, like there's no reason that we should be able to say, no, if it shouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. But I did want to note that the original evidence, the original Findings that gave rise to the suggestion that Giganotus and Mapusaurus may have pack hunting tendencies does not really scream pack hunting. Hmm. It's it's basically they found a number of individuals, nine individual specimens of Mapusaurus in South America that appear to be from a single flood deposit, suggesting they were indeed together when they died mm-hmm. and preserved together. That ranged from adults to small teenagers, suggesting that they could have even been like a family group, mm-hmm. and therefore suggesting they may have been socially living right. together. But this was a pack or a herd or whatever yeah. of these big... A pod, a mm-hmm. flock, whatever you would call big theropods. A pride. Pride. And that from that, the researchers suggested that given the prey around them being big Argentinosaurus type sauropods, 
Though an individual could take down a young one, it would take a group to take down an adult. Right. So maybe they were working together to take down Big Prey. Exactly. But we don't have any evidence of them doing that. Mm -hmm. And there's tons of social animals that still hunt individually. True. Like there's lots of animals that live as a group and individuals go out and hunt. They don't all hunt necessarily cooperatively. So though there is potential support for that, there's no actually direct support for pack hunting in those groups. Mm -hmm. So it's one of those where could Cacarodontosaurus have pack hunted? I mean, I don't see why not. Mm -hmm. There's no evidence or research on that or supporting that. And it's hard to say that just because one Mm -hmm. member of this very large group of dinosaurs did it, that it was necessarily widespread across them. Yeah. Well, it's like even with the famous animals today, like wolves, dogs are famous for pack hunting, but most canids aren't pack hunters. Right. And there's even examples, the Ethiopian wolf, which is social. They take care of their pups together. They live as a pack and hunt individually because there's no big prey in the mountains of Ethiopia for them to take down together. Yeah. Which is an interesting thing to keep in mind because the the question of pack hunting in dinosaurs goes at least all the way back to 1993 when Michael Crichton popularized the idea uh, for the general public. But it it really is a very difficult thing to find evidence for in the fossil record. Most suggested evidences of pack hunting or social living in fossils are many fossils of the same thing being found in generally the same place. Yep. Sometimes you'll have like tyrannosaurs with bites on each other's faces that suggest maybe they were social in some way. There's been at least a couple of examples of footprints mm-hmm. of certain dinosaurs that seem to show them traveling together. But this evidence is rare and really hard to say for sure if that actually means pack hunting. Well, because like a lot of the evidence that you just listed you will find in crocs. Yeah, exactly. Like the, all of those things. Or Komodo injuries, dragons you'll come, do. Yeah. Well, we'll gather f- around food. Mm-hmm. Injuries on each other. Traveling yep. in groups as they follow something. But neither of those groups is cooperative. So it's very difficult to first ascertain that a, they were living together at all. And then, yeah, it's, it's really important to keep in mind that just because they were together in some contexts, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that they were necessarily... Living together, hunting together, uh, uh, and so on. You could get a group that raises its children, mm-hmm. but then that's the only time they're together. Then when they're adults, they split up and that's it. Yeah. Well, you could get, uh, like, there's tons of very cooperative mating pairs of animals that live together as a family group, but only one male or one female right. goes like and hunts. Penguins they... or albatrosses. Yeah. Lots of birds do that. Yeah. So there's no solid evidence, at least currently, that I've heard of that mm-hmm. i was able to find there's not a, as much solid evidence it gets touted around and all the headlines were saying oh giant predators pack hunt mm-hmm. but really the evidence for it was giant predators together at the same time yeah. buried together yeah. at the same time so so it's it's really hard to say it's hard to say there's not a lot sure. of convincing evidence as much as it is often made th- to seem there might be, yeah. based on the way things are reported. However, we can postulate mm-hmm. that since Carcharodontosaurus, the genus, and its broader group were around for millions of years, and there were lots and lots of them yep. over lots and lots of time, there is a very good chance that at least 
at some point, two or more Carcharodontosaurs happened to do the, like, cheetahs. Yeah, or... Two or three of us were hunting together for some reason. Or even that one species, you know. Right, or even one population. Yeah, one type of Carcharodontosaurus. That lived in a place where there wasn't a lot of food. Yeah. Yeah, there's no reason, like you said, there's no reason to think that they couldn't do it. Yeah. Well, it's like, um, but modern... whether or not they did, that, that's something yeah. that comes up a lot in paleontology that I'll hear paleontologists say a lot is uh, there, there is a dramatic difference between what a organism is capable of doing and what an organism is in the habit of doing. Well, it's uh, one of my favorite examples of that is a lot of the statistics you'll see on how long alligators can hold their breath were mm-hmm. found when alligators were held underwater. Yeah. Until they drowned. Yes. <laughs> yep. Okay, well, that's not how long you hold your breath for. No, that's how long you it takes for you to die. Yes. Those are two different <laughs> statistics that are very similar. Right. And so, yeah, you could have... it's uh, Modern birds is what I, I thought of. Birds of prey today are very, very solitary until you get to the Harris hawk, which do show pack hunting t- tendencies. Right. But that's really one group of raptors out of the entire, you know, diversity of raptors. So... Yeah, there could definitely be a lineage, but so far there's not a lot of evidence for it. Yeah, so very cool question mm-hmm. with a, a very broad and nonspecific answer. Yeah, because <laughs> we can't actually say. And with that, we'll wrap up this episode. Hope you all enjoyed this this delving into pinnipeds. Yes, thanks to everyone who requested Absolutely this. Absolutely good requests. Thanks, as always, to our patrons. Check in f- next episode. For our first plant. Plant series. Our starting of our new tradition. Check the blog post for uh, links, images, and extra stuff from this episode. If you have questions, comments, suggestions, you can contact us in the social medias, email. All the links are in the description. We hope everybody is having a good start to their year. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then hopefully there'll be a good rest of it. And we'll see you in a fortnight. When the next episode comes out. Sure will. Until then, seal you later. Mm. Ah, mm. Ah. No one's going to check back in next episode. <laughs> <laughs>